Good morning. Welcome to Spring Meadows Presbyterian Church. I am Ron Warren. I'm one of the new ruling elders here. And we're going to be going through today in our Bible study a subject that is very dear to my heart, which is union with Christ. But first, let's go to the Christ in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. May we hide it in our hearts that we might not sin against thee. We pray, O Lord, that your Holy Spirit would illuminate our minds and seal in our hearts the truth of your word, for there is authority in it and in it alone. For only the Lord is Lord over the conscience. We pray, Lord, that you would not only seal it, that you would give us the will to do it by your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So union with Christ is the heart of Pauline theology. Paul uses the words in Christ 83 times in his epistles. In Romans 8.1, it says, Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. John Murray writes in his classic work, Redemption Accomplished and Replied, that it is the fountain of our salvation. In the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 69, we read, Our union with Christ, what is communion with grace in which the members of the invisible church have with Christ? It then responds, The communion and grace which the members of the visible church have with Christ is our partaking of the virtue of the mediation in their justification, adoption, sanctification, and whatever else in this life. So what does the catechism mean by the invisible church? There is this distinction between the invisible church and the visible church. Paul says, not all of Israel is Israel. He says one is a Jew by the internal circumcision of the heart. We read, too, in the New Testament, the parable between the wheats and the tares. And Jesus says, Master, did you not sow good seed in the field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, the enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to do with gather them? And he says, but he said to them, no, least gathering the weeds, you would root up the wheat along with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into the barn. There will be those who fall away there are those who will apostatize and leave the church. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, it says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been with us, they would have continued with us, but they went out from us that it might become plain that they were not of us. You see, brothers and sisters, they did not have a saving faith. 
You're not saved by just a profession of faith. You're saved by a a possession of faith, which is the gift of God. So what also that we can learn here from the catechism? All of our spiritual blessings are in Christ. We read of that in Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for the adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise and the glory of his grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. What a wonderful passage that is to the Christian. What assurance that we have in these words from the apostle. Because he says there's a plan. There's a plan that starts in the decree of God, in the Godhead himself. We have the Father electing before the foundations of the world. You have Son dying for those whom the Father gives him. And you have the Holy Spirit applying redemption to the hearts of those whom the Father has called. So we have this this covenant of redemption. Uh, They say in the Latin, the theologians, they call it the pactum salutis. So there's a plan. And there's a chain of salvation. We read of it in Romans 8.30. Those whom God predestined, he called. And those who called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorifies. Pastor said it well when he talks about salvation. I have been saved in my justification. I am being saved in my sanctification. And I will one day be saved in my glorification. It is a chain that cannot be broken because it is a chain of grace. In Philippians 1.6, we read, a good work that I have begun, I will complete it. If you think that it is a good work that you have begun, then you must complete it. John Calvin writes, we must now examine this question, how do we receive those benefits which the Father bestowed on his only begotten Son? Not for Christ's own private use, but that we, he might enrich our poor needy men. First, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for us in salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value to us. Therefore, to share with us what we have received from the Father, he had to become ours and dwell within us. All that he possesses is nothing to us until we grow into one body with him. We see this clearly in John 15, the popular verse that Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, he will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And as Luther said, that nothing is not a little something. Excuse me, I have a little cold here. So, by nature, we are of the stock of Adam. 
In Ephesians 2, we read, by nature, we are children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We're not born justified. (laughs) We're born sinners. And we sin because we are sinners. We're born in sin. We're born in iniquity. David says, in the womb you have born me in iniquity. So in Adam all die, but also in Christ all shall be made alive. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. Martin Luther, when he, during the Reformation, when he came across those words in Romans 1, 16 through 17, we read, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek. For in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Up to that point, Luther was trained in the law. He was a lawyer and he could not get the law off his back. He hated God. He would go into the confessional and he would confess his sins for hours and he would walk out and he would remember one sin that he had not confessed. How was Luther to deal with that guilt? But then when he came across these words, he realized that it was a righteousness of God in the gospel that was not his self. It was not from himself. It was a gift of God. The very righteousness of Christ was given to him as a gift through the gift of faith. And he said when he realized that, it was as if the gates of paradise flew open and I walked through. So Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. He didn't believe in God. He believed God. He trusted God. So the gospel is salvation in Christ through faith alone. In the Westminster Confession, chapter 11 of justification, we read, faith thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness is alone, the alone instrument of justification. Yet it is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces and is no dead faith, but worketh by love. Oh, how the confession here weaves the scriptures through its confession. What does it mean by the sole instrument? Faith is the sole instrument. Robert Haldane writes, faith does not justify as an act of righteousness. It's not that one little work that you need to do to be saved, but as the instrument by which we receive Christ and his righteousness. How do you get into Christ? By faith. And it is the gift of God We're reminded in Ephesians 2, by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourself, it is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. And that's why the Apostle Paul can say, if I boast in anyone, I boast in the Lord. It is the salvation that is by grace and grace alone. 
But when we think of our union with Christ and we think of the, the order of salvation, the plan of salvation, what's missing? And we do this in the Reformed faith, and I do it myself. We focus so much on how we are saved. But what about the one who saves us? C.H. Spurgeon explains in the Sermon to the Soul Winners, people have often asked me, what is the secret of your success? I always answer that I have no other secret but this, that I have preached the gospel, not about the gospel. The full, free, glorious gospel of the living Christ, who is the incarnation of the good news. Notice Spurgeon says here, I preach the gospel, not about the gospel. You don't have to have a perfect theology to be saved. Many of us are lacking. We don't understand. My wife, we were on uh, way back from a Leonor conference one time, and I would always have these tapes. This is when we had cassettes. And I put in a cassette of Michael Horton, and he was, uh, he was teaching on propitiation. And propitiation is that Christ took the wrath that we deserved. And this was after she's been a Christian for many years. And I turn over to her and she's weeping. Weeping. She never really totally grasped what Christ had truly done for her at the cross. That he took the sin that she deserved and he, he drank the wrath that she deserved so that she might drink the cup of blessing. So, brothers and sisters, people don't have to believe in the five points of Calvinism to be saved. That's how we are saved. That's why we can say that to our brothers and sisters who do not believe in the five points that they are our brothers and sisters. But I'll tell you this, the more that I have learned the doctrines of grace, the more I have fallen to my knees in humility. For grace takes you out of yourself. Election is saying nothing but this, that your salvation is not of yourselves, but by the grace of God. It's a humbling doctrine. So how do we get into Christ? The larger catechism says it well in question 155. The Spirit of God maketh the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, an effectual means of enlightening, convincing, and humble, humble sinners, of driving them out of themselves and drawing them into Christ, of conforming them to his image and subduing them in his will, of strengthening them against temptations and corruptions, of building them up in grace and establishing their hearts in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. This reminds me of the story of William Carey, the missionary to India. And William Carey was in a meeting with pastors and he, he was making his plea to the pastors that we need to go to India to save the lost. And one of the pastors stood up and said, sit down young man, if God wants to save India, he'll do it without you or I. That's hyper-Calvinism. God saves through the preaching of the word. 
In Romans 10, verses 14 through 17, Paul says, How then can they call on them whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. You see, when the word is preached, when Christ is preached, the Holy Spirit accompanies that word and quickens us to life, gives us a new heart that has new affections for Christ because the Bible says the natural man, the unregenerate man, is hostile to God. He's not running to God. He's running from God. How does God change our hearts? Regeneration. He quickens us to life. Dead men don't respond to grace. As Lazarus was dead in that grave, in that tomb, he did not come forth until Christ said, come forth, Lazarus. He quickened him from dead to life. And he does that to us spiritually. My Bible says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We're not wounded, we're not sick, we're dead. That's the condition of man because of the fall. So conversion, how are we converted? uh, Sinclair Ferguson writes in, in The Whole Christ, and I recommend that book. It is one of the best books I've ever read. It was so good, I read it again. (laughs) And Sinclair Ferguson goes to Acts 2, and he says in Acts 2, in the day of Pentecost, he preaches Christ and him crucified. And what does it say? The Jews were convicted of heart, and they come to Peter, and they say, what must we do? And Peter says, what? Repent and be baptized, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's conversion. There are no preconditions on preaching Christ. We preach Christ to everyone who may hear it. It is the Holy Spirit's work to convict hearts. It is the Holy Spirit that draws us to Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit that gives us the eyes to see Christ and the ears to hear our Savior's call. And he says, what was their response? They were convicted. We read in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. What is the difference between Peter and Judas? They both had grief. One went and hung himself. The other one, what, wept. 
and he returned to the Savior because he had a mediator. Christ said, Peter, the devil would want to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. We have a mediator that prays for us that our faith fail not. So, when we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus, we see ourselves as sinful in need of a savior. In Luke chapter five, verses four through eight, Jesus says to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answers, Master, we have toiled all night and took nothing but your word I let down, at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and the nets were breaking. They signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help. And they came and they filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees and said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. You see, Jesus, Peter in that moment, the glory of God broke through and Peter saw Jesus for who he was, the incarnate God, the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And he saw himself as a sinful man. In Hebrews 3, verses 7 through 8, the Holy Spirit says to us, today, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the day of the rebellion. Before the flood, God said to Noah, my spirit shall not always strive with man. Do not harden your hearts. If you hear the voice of the Savior calling you to me, come to me, all that are heavy burdened and heavy laden. It's a bona fide offer. Will you not come? Will you not trust in him? Will you not rest in him? We are a new creation in Christ, Paul says. We have what we call in the scriptures, the indicative mood and the imperative moods. The indicative mood is who we are in Christ. The indicative is because of that union with Christ, Peter says, be holy, for I am holy. So from our union with Christ flows the fruit as the branches attached to the vine, they receive the sap from that vine to bear forth fruit. In Romans 6, he says, should we say that as we continue to sin that grace may abound? He says, never let it be. He says, we were buried with him, therefore with him in baptism unto death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For we have been united to him in his death like his, we shall certainly be united to him in his resurrection like his. You see, brothers and sisters, we're united to the risen Christ, the ascended Christ, the Christ that is seated in the heavenly 
in the heavenlies at the right hand of the Father. Christ rose from the dead. And as he rose from the dead, we will walk in newness of life. Why? Because we're united to him. And he gives us his spirit. Those key words, Paul says, for sin will have no dominion over you. Sin will have no dominion over you since you are under law. You are not under law, but you are under grace. Oh, how wonderful news that is. Sinclair Ferguson paraphrases John Owen in his treatise on the dominion of sin and grace because Owen is hard to read. (laughs) So he paraphrases. And Sinclair Ferguson says, there are actually ever two pastoral problems you will ever encounter. The first is this, persuading those who are under the dominion of sin that they are under the dominion of sin. That is what we have evangelism for. Second, persuading those who are no longer under the dominion of Christ that they are no longer under the dominion of Christ because they are Christ's. That is the dilemma that we're in. When Paul went to the Corinthian church, he saw many gross sins. And he says to them in 1 Corinthians 6, 15, do you know that your bodies are a member of Christ? Shall I then take the members of your body and make them a members of a prostitute? He's saying, in virtue of your union with Christ, when you go into that brothel, you are taking Christ with you. How can you do that? Never let it be, he says. Martin Luther said that the essence of the Christian life is to live quorum Deo, which in Latin means before the face of God, and under the authority of God and to the glory of God. We live before the face of God. Nothing can be hidden from God. Assurance, our union with Christ is our assurance. In the book Pilgrim Progress by uh, John Bunyan, in there we have Christian who is on his way to the celestial city and he is walking along with his buddy, Pliable. And they're walking and they fall into what they call the slough of despond. And so they are fall, they are struggling in the slough, and pliable turns to Christian. He says, Is this the happiness that you speak of? <laughs> the Christian life is a struggle. It's suffering for Christ. And so he struggles and he gets out of the slough and he returns home and Christian sees him no more. Some will fall away. But as Christian is struggling, he sees somebody else coming along the path and his name is Help. And Help says, Christian, what are you doing there? And he says, I fell into this slough because of this big pack on my back. (laughs) This big weight on my back is weighing me down and I cannot get out. And he says, Did you not see the steps? He 
So he says, give me your hand. And he pulls him out of the slough, and he lands him on solid ground. What are we to learn from this allegory? First John, in John 14, verse 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said. You see, the Holy Spirit points you to the word. You can't separate the Holy Spirit from the word. The Spirit is always pointing you to the Word. He's pointing you to the promises of God in the Word. In Psalm 40, we read, verse 2, He drew me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. Are you trusting in the promises of God? So when you fall into the slough of despond, what do you do with your guilt? The Westminster Confession says, this infallible assurance does not belong to the essence of faith, but a true believer may wait long and conflict with many difficulties before being partaker of it. This certainty is not a bare conjectural or probable persuasion grounded upon the fallible hope, but an infallible assurance of faith founded on the divine truth of the promises of salvation, the inward evidences of those graces unto which the promises are made, the testimony of the spirit of adoption witnessing with our spirits that we are the children of God, which the spirit is the earnest of our inheritance whereby we are sealed for the day of redemption. Some people say here that Calvin and the Westminster are at odds here. That faith, Calvin said, is the essence. That assurance is the essence of faith. And it is. But the confession here is giving us not only an objective assurance or a forensic assurance, which is based upon our justification, there is assurance there. Calvin says, trust is a confidence. We are given this objective assurance. But what about the subjective side of our assurance? The spirit bears witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. That is internal. That's experiential. That's subjective. Paul taught us that we have a duty to make our calling and election sure. Add to your faith virtue. James says faith without works is dead. But what do we do when we're weighed down by our guilt? What do we do when we lose the subjective side of our assurance? We run to Jesus. We run to the objective assurance that we have in Christ. The psalmist says in Psalm 18, verse 2, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength, in whom I will trust. There is assurance there because you are trusting in the God who is trustworthy. So the first thing that we have in the confession is that it's based on the promises of God in salvation. But what are these inward evidences of those graces? 
when we lose our joy, when we lose our assurance, we're to run to Christ, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. Prone to launder, wander, Lord, we feel it. Prone to leave the one we love, we sing it. But what we, do we do? Doubt and anxiety are part of the life of the believer, but that need not and does not remove us from the grace of God. Our hope lies not in our own steadfastness, but in God's. Once we are in the grasp of our Heavenly Father, He will not let go. He will bring you to repentance. But Satan, he is that accuser of the brethren. And then we're reading the book on pleasing God in the Saturday Men's Study. And Sproul takes us to that story in the book of the Old Testament in Zechariah, verse 3, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Where, where we have the high priest, Joshua, who is coming before God, and he's coming before the Holy of Holies with filthy garments. And Satan points to the filthy garments, and he says, how can you let this one pass before you and come before you, God? He has filthy garments. And it says the angel of the Lord was, with, was there. And the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ in the Old Testament. And he says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? You're a brand plucked from the fire. Ash, but alive. Dirty. But it also says in Zechariah chapter 3 that the Lord removed his filthy garments and gave him clean vestments. That is the righteousness of Christ that clothes us. So now when God looks upon you, he sees Christ and he adopts you into his family. And he sees you as a child of God because he sees the works of Christ. He doesn't see our dirty garments. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. One of my favorite passages and a promise from God. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights of death, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, Christ, love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God, what a wonderful promise that is. Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, a good work that he has begun, he will complete it. So how do we apply this? I have 10 minutes. The applications of all this are, what do you do as a Christian when you fall into that slew of despond? What do you do when you lose your joy and peace with God? You run to your justification, you run to Jesus. Because you have been justified with God, you have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord, where we have access into this grace in which we stand.
peace. So Luther said that we are to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. And he says, the love of God towards us is stronger than the dirt that clings to us. Simul justus impeccador, which is Latin for simultaneously sinner and righteous. The word, the word. Paul says, sanctify them by your truth. Thy word is truth. If you want to be sanctified, meditate on the word. The psalmist says, I have hid my heart within your word within my heart that I might not sin against you. The spirit works with the word and he sanctifies you through the word. When Jesus was tempted by Satan, what did he say? It is written, it is written. He says, it is written that you man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from our heavenly Father. The next one is the Lord's Supper. Growing up in the church, I didn't grow up in the Reformed Church, they would always tell me, the Lord's Supper is a memorial meal. In it you are to remember Christ. And you are. Do this for remembrance of me. But it's much more than that. Much more than that. Brothers and sisters, the Lord's Supper is grace. I am so happy to come to this church that we have the Lord's Supper every Sunday. Why? Because Calvin said, when the word is preached, it must be accompanied by the picture of the gospel, which is the Lord's Supper. It's a picture. Calvin said that we are weak in faith, and so God gives us visible, tangible signs of his promises to us in the sacrament. You know, and Paul says he uses union with Christ in, in relationship to our union in marriage. And when I was married, I remember I gave a ring to my wife as a token of my love, this bond of union. And in the Lord's Supper, Christ, he gives you the token of his love, which is himself. He says, come to me, rest in me, trust in me, love me. I have died for you. There is grace in the Lord's Supper. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, it is not a participation in the blood of Christ, the bread that we break, it is not the partition participation in the body of Christ? Are we not communion with Christ? Are we not seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus? By faith, we are communing with the risen Lord. Jesus said in John 6, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, there is no life within you. Now, did Jesus when he was administering the supper to his disciples, did he mean his physical body and his blood? No, he's saying, as I am the incarnate Christ, there is no life in you until, unless you feed on me in union with Christ. 
So when we come to the supper, we are being nourished on Christ. As he is the vine, we are nourishing on the vine. The Lord strengthens our faith. The centurion says, I believe, help thou my unbelief. And finally, prayer. Prayer as a means of grace. The shorter catechism says, what is prayer? A prayer is offering up the desires unto God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. In 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In the book, Pleasing God, Sproul says that there, a woman came to him and she said, Pastor Sproul, I have confessed my sins several times to the Lord and I still feel guilty. And Sproul turned to her and said, Go to the Lord and pray one more time. And he said, this time, repent of your arrogance because he says you do not believe God. Do you believe God? Do you trust in his promises? Let me end with Galatians 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And I, and then the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. And maybe I'll take a question or two. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that We are but brands plucked from the fire by your redeeming grace that we have been given new hearts with new affections for Christ. And those are the things that motivate us, not that we are to earn your favor, but we have our favor with you in Christ and in his righteousness. What an assurance it is to be united to Christ. What a joy it is but to be filled with the Holy Ghost. We pray, O Lord, that we might keep in step with the Spirit for the praise of your glory always. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.